Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Hi, today on the call we have Ashley. Ashley, are you there? I'm here. Awesome. Thanks and aloha. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Um, To get us started, can you give a brief or an introduction for the listeners? Sure. Um, So I am... Approaching my 16th year um, in the field of ABA and special education, I started as a mother's helper um, and then decided, you know what, I'm really into this. I think this is what I want to go to school for. Uh, The child in that family that I was um, helping out with was a child uh, with an autism diagnosis. So I sort of just pursued education from there. Um, So I did a few different things over the the past um, several years. I was a teacher, I worked as a parent trainer, school consultant, and now I own social skills centers. So I feel like I've really found my niche in my little corner of the of the ABA world. That's awesome. Uh, it's always wonderful when you can take that starting point and then go with your passion and see where you end up. I started as an elementary education teacher or pursuing that, and now I have a big interest in looking at behavior change in systems and education. So you find that place where it fits. Um, Thanks for joining us today. Uh, One of the reasons why I wanted you to come and and talk today with us is um, because of your interest and your expertise in the area of like social skills and play and you have so many inventive ideas that you're sharing with others. Um, Can you talk to us about what your social skills programs like look like or, or how you get started or interest or anything you want to kind of about that? Where do we begin? Sure. Um, so for me, I love, um, you know, the science of ABA. I was very drawn to it. Everything made perfect sense to me. But I also really just like having fun. I like kids. I like playing, goofing around, being silly. So for me, it's been really cool to see this evolution where I can be all of the things I love being um, sort of in one one place. So we started off our social skills program very small because I saw such a need for it. There really wasn't anything else out there. The kids are in school all day long. They're surrounded by peers, but not everybody knows how to facilitate social interactions, how to contrive situations. There's just so many missed opportunities, no matter how well-meaning people are throughout the day. So I thought, you know what, let me, let me try to fill that gap a little bit or uh, meet that need. And it's really just grown exponentially from there. So we provide, again, like a pretty niche service. Um, not too many other programs in our area where if you really sort of start to do your research, not a ton even nationally that specifically focus on uh, just player social skills instruction. And for us, it's just so complex. So it's really all we do. Um, so any conference that I'm going to or workshops or books I'm, I'm reading, articles, it's really pertaining to the development of, of playing social skills. Um, always, always something else else to learn. Yes, there's always something else to learn. And I think that can feel really daunting when families or when you have um, teachers or teams, when they're working with early learners, they think, like, where do you start? What are some of the assessments that you use or how do you kind of determine or help teams or parents or teachers decide where to start teaching social skills? 
So I find that a lot of people will define social skills differently. Um, and I will often hear people say, you know, that's something you really need to target later on when there's a lot of other prerequisite skills. But for us, we're really even looking at those very early social responding targets, um, like joint attention, for example, social referencing. So that's in your infants and, and your toddlers. So with our earliest, earliest learners, even though it's a very heavily play-based program, I would still consider that to be a social skills program. So when we frame it that way, it makes sense to me that we're targeting skills very, very early on, and we don't have to wait until we build up this larger skill repertoire and meet, you know, all these other prerequisites in order to comfortably target social skills. So again, not that one person is right or wrong, it's just we, I think we could do a better job maybe of trying to get on the same page with what we're talking about. I'm certainly not focusing on, you know, teaching my three-year-olds to say please and thank you and excuse me if they're not able to make simple requests, you know, to, to get their wants and needs met. But I am heavily focusing on pairing our uh, attention or conditioning attention as a reinforcer, pairing peers with reinforcers, really just trying to have a lot of fun with that child, very functional eye contact, getting that approach behavior, joining in. To me, all of that is social skills. We are, we are building a great foundation for later language development, certainly, uh, but then also later social skills development as well as we sort of climb that, that ladder and that, that hierarchy. So I really would encourage folks to kind of maybe rethink or reframe the way they are thinking of the concept of social skills um, globally. I think it's really important. A couple of the points that you made that resonate are looking at those entry or access points at an age-appropriate level. And in order to do that, you have to have an understanding of child development, right, and what is, what is typical child development. Um, but also when we talk about social skills, there's the joke that we are teaching and training children to behave nicer and better than adults. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we are so awkward. You know, I sometimes I think, oh, gosh, everybody's done so well-meaning, but sometimes it's, we just create very, very awkward situations. I mean, I always think of the example of kids walking up to other kids and saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. Can I play with you? Don't do that. They just walk up to other kids and kind of start playing with what they're playing with, or they make a positive comment first to gauge interest. So you really, really, you know, hit the nail on the head when you said we have to understand typical development because if we don't, we are just teaching what we think is appropriate, but not necessarily successful social behaviors. Um, I've, you know, put a video on our, our uh Facebook page a while back about potty humor. I don't care if the kids are telling, you know, potty jokes to, to each other. You know, at, at a certain age, if they're all laughing together and they're having a good time, I am not interrupting those types of interactions unless it's in the middle of me trying to tell them something important, you know, or another situation like that. But I tell our whole team, if you see a positive and reciprocal interaction between kids, unless it's extremely extremely inappropriate, that would never be acceptable, you know, anywhere else. Don't intervene. Isn't that the whole, isn't that exactly what we were trying to teach? So why interrupt that? But people, I think, you know, really, really miss the mark when, when choosing targets. Um, again, like, like you mentioned, little, you know, 
ladies and gentlemen with, with perfect manners and, and nice etiquette, there's so much more to social skills development and instruction than that, than those specific targets. Yeah, I think of when I first entered the field, you know, we talked a lot about teaching compliance and teaching, you know, following instructions. And now I don't think it's just a reflection of, you know, society, which is a part of it, but an evolution of really understanding how to analyze, break down, conceptualize, and then teach different components of social exchanges. I want to teach advocacy. I want you to be able to say, this is when I need this. This is when I don't need that. And those kinds of um, some subtleties are going to be better detected over time. And when we look at like typical and traditional interactions, and hopefully that doesn't help us miss the mark, uh, helps us find it a little bit better. Twice already in the short time that we've been on the call today, you've mentioned having fun. So having fun and not taking ourselves too seriously is definitely a mission of yours that we share. Well, a question I have for you is how do you teach fun? How do you capture fun? How do you model that for others? Because that is something that's really hard to teach sometimes. Yes, it's it is difficult, and it's one of the few things – I don't want to say you have it or, or you don't, but I think that some people just instinctually are more um, comfortable being silly in front of others, or you just have that sort of creativity. But from an analytical perspective, I really just watch the kids. What are they doing? You know, if there's no demands placed or we're not, you know, facilitating any sort of interaction, what are they doing? Where are they getting enjoyment from? Okay, that gives me great clues about what might function as a reinforcer and what preferences are. And then how can I, you know, pull that in or include myself in that? And then it's just so much um, back and forth of reading that body language. And if people could see me, I'm just sort of flailing my arms around in the motion of sort of that, that back and forth. So, you know, I'll engage in some sort of behavior. I'm looking at the response of the child. Do they come closer to me? What's their affect? Do they, they back up? And then you just need to use all of that information. So do more of what they like, you know, and then how do you know they like it? They're smiling, they're laughing, they're approaching. Um, do less of what they didn't like. And, you know, you mentioned not taking ourselves too seriously. It's okay to be silly and be weird and be wacky you're really trying to build that relationship and make that connection um you know relationships are are everything when when it comes to building you know more skills you you have that instructional control the kids want to be with you um and they're really excited about learning at that point so it's very very difficult to teach others to do it, but I think if you break it down, um, you can identify what it is you're looking for in a child and how to decide um, how you're going going to respond. But you'd need to do it very fluently, or else you lose the kids. You, you know, you miss them if, if you're off by a couple a couple seconds in your in your response time. Yes, <laughs> you got to be on your toes, and you want to be um, constantly captivating, but also being able to you know, stop, have instruction, be a part of the environment when we want to be, but not a part of the environment when we want them to really be looking at their peers. You also use the keyword facilitate. You're not looking to um, necessarily always be a part of the social interaction. Can you talk about maybe some of the differences in um, how somebody facilitates a social interaction? Yes, and I'm so glad that we segued into this because in talking about um, – 
you know, training staff or staff development, that is something that I find can often be very difficult. A lot of times, especially because it's a, it's a group learning situation, you'll have an instructor that's wanting to run it more like a classroom. Um, and yes, if we're using, you know, BST or providing some sort of instruction, that's great. But really, I'm wanting to facilitate as many peer-to-peer -peer interactions as possible. So we need to, as instructors, provide that, that support, but then we really need to fade into the background as much as possible. So one specific example I'm thinking of is when we're targeting conversation. So at the highest level of structure, um, and something that we would call, con you know, this is called conversation circle. They come into group and we, we try to hold on to exciting news and then we share that with one another. Um, during that time, we're focused on learning to make comments like, cool, awesome, you know, sounds fun, asking follow-up questions, reciprocating on topic information about ourselves. And it can so easily become a very teacher-directed activity when really I'm looking for those comments to one another. So tiny, tiny nuances, but it makes a huge difference. I see so much less spontaneous, um, you know, uh, contributions to conversation when it's teacher-directed. The kids feel like they have to be called upon or asked in order to respond, and that's the opposite of what I'm looking to teach or facilitate at that time. So we really work to fade ourselves out of that circle um, as quickly but also as systematically as possible. When I observe um, – you know, other groups, or again, when new staff come in, I see that happening so um, so commonly or, or so frequently that it is directed rather than facilitated. So just something to keep in mind. Definitely something to keep in mind. When I was working in schools, I'd be out on recess yards or playgrounds, and um, I remember going one time, and they were like, you know, how do we get these children to engage or how do we get the skills that we've worked on in our social groups or lunch bunch or more, you know, contrived situations or smaller settings, how do we get it to generalize? And what I would see would be, you know, adults either outside um, kind of either talking to one another or uh, maybe playing with a small group of students or, you know, scanning the whole yard, but there really wasn't this like hey come chase me let's ask your friend to play and then once the friend's chasing the other child you know we're no longer the ones running around the yard um, if you will and that becomes I think something that takes a lot of practice and um, one thing I will tell people is no matter how fun I am I'm not four years old so right. <laughs> the best instruction for you know play is someone else who wants to play with you in that way um, so really incredible um, points that resonate for me with a lot of my experiences. Now, you have a social skills center or centers. Can you talk to us about, like, what that has been like or setting that up, or is it a full day? Is it an after school? How does how do people access your services, and what do they look like? Sure. So we have a, um, a few locations now. Uh, again, it's starting off as a very, very small program. I was just, you know, testing the waters a little bit, you know, checking for interest, and we're very fortunate that it's grown to be what it is um, right now. Primarily, our groups will run after school, and then we have a pretty busy day on Saturdays. So we run about eight, eight groups in our largest facility, um, then typically three in our satellite locations. Uh, we serve ages three 
through 19 right now would love to serve young adults. We just put together a group based upon, you know, the needs in the, in the community. We work very hard to form best fit groups, and I think that's what sets us apart a little bit as well and I think really makes a difference in the progress that the kids are, are making. So when I say best fit group, the kids are similar in age, but I'm also specifically looking at areas of strength um, and need, but also preferences. So we're not marketing, marketing it as a friendship group per se. If the kids make friends in the group and they want to hang out outside, that's great, awesome. But they're in school all day long with a whole different set of peers, uh, family, family, friends, things like that. So I want to make sure that we really are building skills that they can go out and use elsewhere. I love how natural our program comes across. So it's a very strong clinical model. You know, we have a very thorough intake and assessment process. All the kids have individual goals and objectives. We're taking data, you know, on those goals every week but it just looks like fun. So if you didn't know what ABA was, it looks like it's a bunch of kids, you know, just, just playing games together. And that's really what I was going for. So we're embedding all of that instruction inside um, things or activities that the kids would typically encounter in other situations. So if they were invited for a, a play date, um, you know, they go over to a family friend's house or whatever it is, we're really looking to simulate those same types of activities or uh, experiences and situations within the office. So rather than, for example, targeting a skill of the week, you know, week one, we're doing sportsmanship, week two, friendship, we develop what we call a global focus of the group. So it's usually between three and five targets, and that's what um, the kids in the group primarily need to be working on. And then we develop a structure and routine for that group to make sure that there are multiple opportunities to practice those skills every single week. So following a similar routine, but taking certain types of activities. For example, maybe we always do a cooperative play activity every week in a certain group that really needs to be working on um, teamwork, accepting others', others ideas, uh, being told no, things like that. We may always do a competitive activity for kids who are really tolerating, you know, not being first, losing, a uh, conversation circle for, for our candidates who are ready for, you know, for more advanced language skills. Um, that's made a huge difference for us because when I started, I did the whole week one, this skill, week two, this, because that's what I always saw elsewhere. And I've really come to learn that just because other people do it a certain way or just because that's how you were, you were taught doesn't mean that it's the best way. So, again, data-driven decisions. We, we've made a lot of changes and modifications and I'm really happy with the, the structure that we have in place right now. Um, I'll always continue to change it and, and grow it, um, but I, I do think that this model is, is very effective right now. I like that. Data-based decisions, of course, and, you know, you want to make sure that it has a strong internal component before we extend and replicate, and that's always, I think, a benefit of, of being really systematic and being open to change. If you're, you know, if data's telling you to go in a different direction, that's where we shall march. Um, but you talked about models and modeling and doing what we all know and then how you've made those adjustments. Are there any particular, like, materials or 
maybe even like magic (laughs) things that you think like, gosh, if I knew this then or knowing what I know now, here's what I would suggest to somebody else. Can you offer us any ideas there? So really I just say don't forget to be an analyst. There are so many great resources out there. I should know I I purchased anything that has social skills in the title or, or play. Those are great for supplementary resources, but don't forget to continue to, to read the research. And you can read outside of our field. That's okay. I mean, I would even encourage that, especially when it comes to, to play and social skills, and just read through that behavior analytic lens. Once I started to do that, I felt very empowered, and, and I didn't feel that I was sort of shoved into this box where here's the only things you can read about. Here's the only conferences you can go to or, or this or that. So once I became more confident in my ability to, you know, digest certain things or pick apart things or, or analyze, it made a huge difference. So I, I encourage people to, um, you know, step outside their comfort zone a little bit in that respect. Another way that I think you've modeled stepping outside of your comfort zone perhaps is through some of your efforts um, and what you share on social media. That can be a place that's very, um, it allows us access to so many people, but also offers us up for criticism. Um, and I think you've done a really nice job of, of modeling um, what collaboration looks like and what just innovation can look like. Do you have any lessons learned or comments on your experience doing things like ABA Skillshare? Um, well, I appreciate that, that so much because I was really working hard to um, just have a really positive and collaborative share space. That Skillshare group for me really was just born on a day where I felt especially alone in the field. I had several meetings that week, and I just felt everybody was coming to me with these cookie-cutter plans. And I thought, yes, we need to stick with science, but can we at the same time think outside the box a little bit and be a little bit more creative? There have to be other people out there that want to share some some idea. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll form a group and maybe a few people will be interested and we can, we can start a conversation. So that really took on a whole, a whole life of its own. Quite a few members in that group now. But I have to say it's been a pretty positive experience. I find that uh, for the most part there's, there's very respectful um, interactions within that, that group. People are very, very generous in what they are sharing with others. And I know it really helped me to not feel so alone in, in the field. I've been able to make some really great friendships and also connect with some mentors. I mean, I, I've connected with you, know you through through the social media world. So there can be uh, many, many positive things that, that come out of that. Uh, we definitely can be using social media for good. Yes, we can. You can't see me, but I just right? <laughs> fist bumped you, like raised my fist in the air. I was like, yes, we can use it for good. Of course, I believe that we can. Um, and I think that an opportunity we have is to connect with each other, right? Like one of my first publications was through people I had never met at the time and four or five different states. And then I've since been able to do things with people in all sorts of different parts of the world, like you said, meeting and connecting with you. Um, and I was mentioning to you before, but I'll share with the listeners as well. My, my mom is now a in her first year of teaching. Um, later in life, gone back to school, went to be a teacher, teaching first grade, and she goes to ABA Skillshare page 
finds resources, shares resources. Um, and nothing kind of excites me more than being tagged in a post about a connection in our professions from my mom. And so it's like it's a it's something that's reached, as we said, geographic barriers, you know, different people in different parts of the profession, things that overlap. So it's yes, been I love that. And, and I'll have people reach out to me or come up to me and say, you know, my professor encouraged me to, to join or it was on our, our syllabus. And I think, wow, you, you don't realize how far reaching it can can be. And even if one more person feels, you know, that they have a network or they have somebody to, to reach out to, to me that that's absolutely worth it, especially a lot of the practitioners who – you know, are going to homes and maybe don't have the opportunity to be meeting as, as a team as often as others. I think it's really valuable for them. Of course, we can't be sitting there, you know, doling out clinical advice, but just the opportunity to, to connect with, with others who, you know, are just part of your same, your same tribe. That's right. You want to find your tribe. Find your yeah. people. Find them. People. Find them and keep them. Yeah. Create new people. Yeah. In- increase that group and connect us all to each other. Well, Ashley, I want to thank you so much for joining today and for sharing your information and your passion on these areas and the lessons that you've, you know, kind of imparted on us. And I think the the most important one for me is everyone to remember, you know, be a scientist, but don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Um, yes. And to be teaching the skills and, 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 you know, working on our own social skills that we're teaching our kiddos to do, our clients. Um, But before we end today, is there any other resource, recommendation, reference, project you're working on, anything that you want to share? So we're uh, very excited, actually. It's been a long time coming of trying to put together some online modules. So we do some distance consultations for professionals and and things like that. But we've gotten a lot of requests um, for people to access resources who maybe live very far away outside the U.S. So we'll be um, releasing those modules, at least the first one, later this month. So all about play, um, going through the hierarchy stages of play, um, and how we can teach play using evidence-based practices. So we are, we're very, very excited about that. How do we learn more about it? Where can we find more? Are you going to tell us later? Sure. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, I want to keep everything hush-hush so nobody can access that. Um, so we are on Facebook as Mission Cognition. So that's a great spot to, to kind of keep in the loop. Um, and then we have a uh, sister site, mission-cognition-share.com. We put up a bunch of resources, things that have worked really well for us in the office. Again, always has supplemental materials, you know, for things you already have in place. Um, so feel free to, to browse that. There's a there's a store there, a couple of blog posts, and then you'll be able to link to the modules through that site as well. So hopefully folks will find that useful. I'm sure they will. Thank you, and thank you for joining us today. Um, for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, feel free to check out www.behaviorbabe.com. <laughs>